If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We're really only talking about two or three decades from this being one of the most modestly developed areas of Northern Europe into an incipient superpower, both in terms of uh, its military and naval capacity and in its trading capacity. That was Misha Glenny describing the remarkable history of the Netherlands. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Starting today, the 21st of May, on BBC Radio 4, is a new three-part series on the history of the Netherlands. It's presented by the journalist Misha Glennie, who's previously explored the history of countries including Germany and the United States for BBC Radio. I caught up with Misha down the line a little while back to find out more. To what extent do you think that the Netherlands' fairly unique geographical position within Europe has influenced its history? Oh, well... This is absolutely huge, the geographical position of the Netherlands, because it is where the North Sea and the Atlantic effectively meet. And indeed, as one of the people we interviewed described it, if you go to the east of the Netherlands, you're very much in a sort of Germanic territory. If you go to the south, 
they said it's almost a bit like France. If you go to the West, Amsterdam and the West Coast, uh, it's very Atlantic, even British, they said, in terms of their attitudes and culture. And if you go to the North, then you're in Scandinavia already. And so it is in this unique position, not only of absorbing cultures from all parts of Europe, and of course for a long time it was controlled by the Spanish Habsburgs, but because of its geographical position, there's the trading aspect as well. And this was the territory where the trades from the Baltic, primarily in fish and grain, met the more exotic trades from the Mediterranean and beyond. And that's why successive towns in the Netherlands, whether it's Antwerp or Bruges, or then later on Amsterdam and Rotterdam, became the trading hubs par excellence of of Europe. And so you mentioned there about how the Netherlands, say 500 years ago, was part of the Habsburg Empire under Spanish domination and then managed to break free. So how did a relatively small country like this manage to defeat the mighty Spanish? Well, it didn't all manage to break free. In fact, this is where some of the origins of the split between what is now the Kingdom of the Netherlands that we colloquially call Holland and Belgium um, starts to starts to emerge. So it, essentially what happens is, is that throughout the Netherlands, at the beginning of the 16th century, you see a fairly rapid spread of Protestantism, of Lutheranism, which fairly soon assumes in the Netherlands the hue of Calvinism. And this divides the society internally in the Netherlands quite dramatically, but of course it also challenges the power structures of the Spanish Habsburgs, Charles V and then Philip II. And what you see is is that the Spanish, which at the time was the mightiest army in Europe, focus a lot of their attention on the south, which at the time Antwerp and Bruges, Ghent and Brussels are the key trading and economic areas of the region. Um, And here you see a very brutal counter-reformation take place. And what this does, amongst other things, is drive the Protestants of those areas with their skills, with their capital, and with their networks up to the north. Now, the north at the time was really very underdeveloped. In the west, just a series of tiny little towns, fishing villages even. Amsterdam wasn't much more than that at the end of the, at the, end of the 15th century. And otherwise, there are rather um, underdeveloped agricultural provinces like Groningen and Gelderland. And suddenly they get this influx of um, of money and of uh, economic skills, and this combines with Calvinism and with the relatively egalitarian internal structures of the northern provinces to give it um, a growth spurt forged in the 
national struggle against uh, the Spaniards, and they coalesce around one figure, William the Silent, in the second half of the 16th century. And suddenly you see that the provinces, who are very disparate culturally and linguistically in many ways, assume a cultural and political coherence that has never existed before, really in Europe at all. Then, so it wasn't actually long afterwards that what we now know as the Dutch Golden Age began, where the country became a, a major commercial, maritime and cultural power. And again, I'd be interested to know what, what do you think enabled it to punch above its weight to such an extent? Well, this is really astonishing because we're really only talking about two or three decades from this being one of the most modestly developed areas of Northern Europe into an incipient... Um, superpower, both in terms of uh, its military and naval capacity and in its its trading capacity. So the first thing is, is that uh, you have this very spirited entrepreneurial culture emerging after you get the uh, wave of immigrants from the south of the Netherlands. And this begins to attract a lot of people from all over Europe. So you get a lot of Germans there offering their manual labour. There is a very significant migration of Iberian Jews from Spain and, and Portugal into the United Provinces, that's the Dutch Netherlands, and they bring with them a lot of capital and a lot of entrepreneurial spirit. And then one crucial thing happens. They form in the early 17th century a company, the Dutch East Indies Company, which is a, a new type of structure that has never been seen before in Europe. And that is a capitalist imperialist venture, one that is based on shared risk and the pooling of capital, as opposed to the hierarchical monarchical structures that we know from Spain and Portugal. And this supercharges the Dutch economy, literally in the space of about 15 years or so, and it is with the money earned from the East Indies Company and other various trading organisation that the Dutch start to supersede all the previous empires and become the number one power by about 1630, 1640, not just in Europe, but at the time in the world. It was also around this time that the rivalry with Britain grew up quite a lot, Britain and the Netherlands. So could you tell us a little bit about that and also um, how that might have changed after the Glorious Revolution? Well, it, it's a curious thing, of course, because on the one hand, there was a natural engagement between the two because they were both Protestant powers. And in fact, Elizabeth I, as early as Elizabeth I, she came in to uh, guarantee, at a cost, to guarantee the integrity of the United Provinces when it was under uh, severe pressure, both from the Spanish Netherlands and from France. And from that ideological and cultural perspective, you would have thought there was a lot these two nations had in common. But very quickly, of course, they found themselves in a competitive relationship when it came to world markets. 
So after the after the end of the Thirty Years' War, so in from the 1650s to the 1670s, you see a series of Anglo-Dutch wars, the three Anglo-Dutch wars, which are essentially about Britain for the first time really challenging the Dutch for uh, their global uh, markets. But nonetheless, even though the Dutch were were clearly uh, on the wane at this point, you've got to remember that Holland in the late 17th century only had a population of 2 million people as opposed to 20 million people in France and about 6 million people in Britain. So it was really punching up above its weight and still challenging the might of both France and Britain navally. And then in 1688, of course, William of Orange uh, saw himself with James II on the throne as the potential victim of an Anglo-French alliance driven in part by James II's Catholicism. And so he decided to take the initiative and invade Britain. Now, we refer to the Glorious Revolution as the Bloodless Revolution and like to see it as the sort of, uh, you know, natural evolution of English and British uh, parliamentary liberalism. But in fact, this was an invasion. And many of the things that we cherish about the British Constitution, in actual fact, came to us from Europe on the Dutch ships that brought William of Orange over to London. And so it was less of a a glorious revolution and more of a successful invasion by a European monarch. Could we then even talk about the Dutch conquest as we do about the Norman conquest? Probably not, no, because it wasn't nearly such a sort of devastating uh, takeover of the whole place. And remember that a lot of people wanted William of Orange to uh, come and save them from James II. There was strong support for William inside England in particular. Of course, things were more problematic in Ireland, as we know. But uh, it was a sort of invited invasion. There was a strong basis of support, but it did restructure the way that the British constitution was was fashioned. And yeah, but I think it's worth remembering. It's because when we talk about the Glorious Revolution here in Britain, we rather remove the Dutch aspect from it. And I think it's important to remember that although in places like Ireland, they remember it very, very strongly, that here we've rather forgotten the critical role that the Dutch played in fashioning uh, not just British institutions, but of course British imperialism as well. The British had watched very closely how the Dutch had created their enormous imperial empire. And we often forget just how large the Dutch empire of the 17th century was. For a period of time, not only did they control uh, Indonesia and the Spice Islands, they had a, a huge presence in South America, in uh, the, the Caribbean, uh, uh, Curaçao and so on, but also they controlled Brazil for 40-odd years. They controlled New Amsterdam, which later became New York. They had the, the, the Cape in South Africa. This was a massive, massive empire, and the British learnt a lot from how you go about doing that, not least in terms of the company structures that you require by which the state and commercial interests began to fuse in a form of mercantilism. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate 
isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What kind of imperial masters were the Dutch? How did they compare to some of the other great imperial powers in the way they treated the people that they'd conquered? Well, the answer is they didn't treat them very well. They behaved pretty much the way that other imperialists do, which is to believe that uh, they have rights to exploit the territory, to exploit the people. They were known in Indonesia as being extremely violent in somewhere like uh, uh, Brazil and then later in New Amsterdam, Peter Stuyvesant, a famous name, was uh, bordering on the psychopathic Calvinist who uh, not only hated uh, foreigners, he hated Jews, he he was a very, very nasty piece of work. And in fact, it was only the interests and requirements of the trustees of the East and West Indies companies that sometimes was able to pull back the really worst excesses of the uh, colonialist army of the Dutch. But basically, they were not very nice at all, certainly not the sort of touchy-feely liberals that we know the Dutch to be today. What would you say were the main reasons for the decline of the Dutch Golden Age? Well, essentially, they they were too small. As I said earlier, there were only two million of them in the second half of the 17th century. And once the British had understood how they could leverage their own population and, and sea power, once you saw the Spanish and the Portuguese go into terminal decline, the Dutch had extended themselves as far as they possibly could and this couldn't be sustained any longer. And I think they essentially understood this and knew this themselves, and it was a question of of maintaining what they could. But uh, the decline in the 18th century was, was pretty rapid as France and Britain became the overwhelming European and global powers. There was a brief period where the modern Netherlands and, and what's now Belgium unified but then that, that only lasted very, for a very short time. So why did that come about and then why did it just not work? Well, it unified in the wake of the Congress of Vienna because the other European powers, the powers that had defeated France, wanted to have a sort of strong bulwark against French expansion to the east again. Uh, but by this time, the cultural differences between the South Netherlands and the North Netherlands, i.e. between Belgium and what we'd colloquially call Holland, had grown so significantly. And of course, the South was overwhelmingly Catholic. The North was primarily Protestant, although it did have a large Catholic minority. It was hard to knit those two sides together. But the main reason was, of course, that the monarch was a Dutch monarch. And the Dutch monarch wanted the Belgians to be Dutch. And the Belgians simply didn't feel that way. Not just the French-speaking population of Belgium, but even the Flemish-speaking population, i.e. Dutch-speaking population, uh, felt that they were being lorded over 
by the Dutch ruling class and they revolted, quite simply, and the rather than negotiate and ameliorate the worst excesses of monarchical rule, the Dutch sort of doubled down on it, and this ensured that the revolution in Belgium spread, and eventually they proved strong enough to break away, form their own constitution in 1830, which at the time was regarded as a model constitution. It was copied by many people, uh, many other countries, notably in the Balkans, who believed that they saw in it a successful way of weaving together two different uh, linguistic identities, the Flemish and the French. And then coming into the 20th century, obviously the Netherlands and Belgium both suffered quite badly at the hands of Germany. So how did the two world wars shape their relationship with the rest of Europe? Well, I think certainly in Holland, in the Netherlands, the hostility towards Germany is still palpable. Particularly if you go to the east of of Holland, they have never really fully psychologically recovered from uh, Nazism. Uh, And of course, Belgium was particularly stained by the First World War because so many of the interminable battlefields were, of course, on Belgium territory. But that, of course, gave them both an incentive to encourage, support and actively assist, wherever possible, Franco-German reconciliation, because they understood that rather than being squeezed between two hostile uh, great powers, Germany and France, it would be in their interests to make sure that Germany and France were friends. And so that's why you see the Benelux countries as really the sort of cultural and political heart of the European Union, particularly after the Germans and French had come up with the Iron and Steel Agreement in the 1950s. And then looking now at the present-day Netherlands... I think it's probably for most people it's perhaps best known for the liberalism which you talked about earlier. But what would you say are really the defining points of the Netherlands in the 21st century? Well, liberalism is what you see when you go to Amsterdam in particular. Um, Certainly when I was growing up, it was famous for the coffee shops. They're called coffee shops, but they're, of course, places where you can buy and smoke marijuana. And the other sort of big tourist attraction was the the red light district. And Amsterdam will always be this very lively city with lots of attractions. And beyond that, of course, things like the Rijksmuseum and so on. But actually, Holland, outside of Amsterdam in particular, is quite a quiet, industrious, disciplined and socially very conservative country, but one that I think is deeply concerned about the integrity of Europe, but like all of Europe recently has had to grapple with challenges that have come from immigration, from the uh, refugees who've been coming in from Syria and elsewhere. They have very liberal impulses in Holland, but there have also been significant backlashes emerging in the past 10 years, most notably in the form of the right-wing politician Gert Wilders. So, 
It's a, it's a country that is in flux. It's a country that is also deeply, deeply disappointed and distressed by the prospect of the United Kingdom leaving the European Union. That was Misha Glennie. Episode 1 of The Invention of the Netherlands airs today, the 21st of May, at 8pm on BBC Radio 4. And it will be available on iPlayer Radio after that. Now before we go, I'm pleased to announce that tickets for this year's History Weekend events are now on sale. We're returning once again to both Winchester and York for the weekends of the 5th to 7th of October and the 19th to 21st of October, respectively. On the lineups, we have many of Britain's best-known historians, authors and broadcasters. Among them, Lucy Worsley, Bernard Cornwell, Susanna Lipscomb, Michael Wood and very many more. Head to historyweekend.com now for more details and to book tickets. And you can also find out more about the events in the June issue of BBC History magazine, which is now on sale with the Black Death on the cover. All right, well, we've now come to the end of today's episode, but we will be back again on Thursday with more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. 